Father, we are eager this morning to learn. And we pray, Lord, that you would provide the increase and hear the openness of our hearts as we come before you and ask to be spoken to. We want to pray, Father, that we would come to this topic with a sense of honesty and just look to the leading of thy good and Holy Spirit as we try to understand the ways of men. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I don't like having to start off with apologies, but you know what? That is ugly. Okay, that... On my laptop, that background actually shows somewhat blue skies with some light clouds. Okay, and I thought that, well, that would be an appropriate backdrop for us to try to understand something about God's will, but that's not the way that this is turning out. So, um... I, I would like to lay out some expectations for everybody about what I hope to cover and how, um, how I feel led that the forum should work. First, a few goals. I'd like to help the attendees further develop a biblical framework for understanding God's will. Now, as I know many of the ideas that people have about this, one of the things that we all struggle with is to find a kind of common language and common priorities and common stresses as we talk about this. So part of what I felt would be helpful for everybody was to kind of lay out what I'm calling a framework of a sort of vocabulary and a way of organizing this topic that when people would get the PowerPoint presentation later, assuming that some of them might, you can go back and refer to this to actually understand something of, of organizing our thoughts on this topic. <clears throat> I'm hoping that the attendees are going to realize that one doesn't find closure on this topic. Okay, this is the kind of topic that one continues to mature, and one continues to learn. So if you're coming with the expectation that the brother is going to teach us how we should understand God's will, it's not going to end that way. Okay? We're all in this together, and I would venture to say that on some level, we're all struggling with this topic. On some level, we're struggling with it. So we're coming to this as equals. To challenge the attendees as to what aspects of God's will tend to command their attention more than other aspects of God's will. Just making one quick observation, there are a lot of singles in the room today. That does not go unnoticed. Why is this topic relevant? We're faced with an unprecedented number of choices in our time. Concerned believers want some assurances that the choices we make are consistent with God's expectations. Difficulty in knowing God's expectations causes a significant amount of angst and anxiety for many believers. And I would say most of you don't know that when you're counseling with those that are really struggling with this, you only see the downside of their belief system. You only see the downside of near catastrophes in life when people are suffering under certain ideas and beliefs that they can't get around that is really impeding their ability at times to be able to function. So, you know, the average member of the church wouldn't see that, but of course the leaders the council do and know that this is a very relevant topic for that reason. Um, some vocabulary that I'd like to uh, create with this. So I'm calling something here a common view of God's will. I think you're going to find that different aspects of what is going to be laid out here, you actually have in common with your own beliefs. Maybe not every one of them, but as I mentioned in the introduction, this is a kind of topic that we actually catch more than we're taught. It's caught, not taught. So we come to believe things ad hoc, not in an organized way. So this is part of a way to try to organize what a common view of God's will is. So one aspect of a common view is that God has a sovereign will. And by that we mean that it's God's secret plan that determines everything that happens in the universe. Because God's will is secret, 
It does not directly affect our decision-making. That's generally the way that we might view this. I have some verses underneath each one of these. We're not going to go into these right now, but I've listed some verses for you that you feel free later to go and uh, check this out. The second point is a common view is that we believe in God's moral will. By that we mean that God has revealed commands in the Bible that teach how men ought to believe and live. Where God has spoken in the Bible, the believer must obey. But God's moral will does not directly address many specific decisions faced by an individual. To compensate for that last point, there's a general belief that there would be a third part to this that one might call God's individual will. Now this would be God's ideal, detailed life plan uniquely for each person. God's guidance for decision-making is given through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who progressively reveals God's life plan to the heart of the believer through a variety of means. This is the aspect of God's will that is usually of greatest concern to those facing life's decisions. Okay, so in terms of a framework, these are the three basic things that people tend to believe as to how we think of God's will. Now, I'm going to show you some pictures and do some contrasting here so that we understand these points one from another. So one point is here the common view um, in picture form which, as I mentioned, is more caught than taught, might be described this way, that within the circle of God's moral will, there is a dot in the center, which we call the center of God's will. And we believe that it's within this dot that God's individual will rests for each one of us. Sometimes we call it the center of God's will, Sometimes people might call it God's perfect will, but what they mean is more or less the same thing, that in the dead center of God's moral will is God's ideal plan for each one of us. There's some corollaries to the common views statement about individual will. One is that within, so this is a statement of fact, within the larger circle of God's moral will, Finding the dot in the center is essential to making correct decisions in daily life. It's what we generally believe. Choosing apart from God's perfect will, I mean missing the dot, will likely result in experiencing God's second best or living within sometimes what we hear as God's permissive will. Have you ever heard anybody use that phrase? Generally, that's what they're inferring. There's yet a third corollary, and that is uh, that sometimes missing the dot can lead to forfeiting blessings or even frustrated circumstances in our walk of faith. Again, this is one of the things that we just catch. We catch by inference as we speak with each other, that that is quite often something that's being inferred. You miss the dot, it might be within God's permissive will, but it has like consequences for that, that we're dealing with. Missing the dot also includes making decisions which are not in line with God's timing. Have you ever heard anybody said that? You know, we're walking ahead of God. We're walking ahead of God, and so because we're walking ahead with them, we're out of step, we're out of line, And sometimes things can go awry because we're walking ahead of them. Okay, so these in general are corollaries to a view of God's individual will. Now, we're going to do some other contrasting here between some of these different wills just to be able to make clear in everyone's mind how these things work with or against each other. So first we're going to look at God's individual will and contrast it with God's sovereign will. So... God's individual will, uh, we might think of as a detailed plan for, this, for the decisions in a believer's life. 
the common view would hold that believer, the believer is able to find and know that dawn. Furthermore, the claim is that believers are expected to find it as part of our Christian walk. We're saying it's not optional. Mature Christians find it. And they find it every time. And that's the super spirituality of being a mature Christian that we manage to find it every time. We don't say that to each other, but that's what we infer. Believers can miss it by failure to discover or to obey it. Two ways you can go wrong there. It includes all that which is good and ideal. And again, the inference is that it must be discovered before a decision can be made. So we're all in a holding pattern until we discover the dot. If you don't discover it, you better not move ahead. You're walking ahead of God now. So you're in a holding pattern until you discover the dot. This is a directly ideal plan. It's in harmony with the Bible, and it's always the most ideal decision, and so brings glory to God. And do we say that to each other? We generally don't, but these are some of the things that are often inferred. On the other hand, God's sovereign will is a detailed plan for all events in the universe. It's hidden. Only God knows it. So, by definition, the believer cannot find it and cannot know it, because only God knows it. Believers are not expected to find it as part of the Christian life. Believers cannot miss it, because it always comes to pass. Regardless of good or evil decisions that are made in this world, God's sovereign will comes to pass. It's generally what people accept and believe. It includes both good and evil, right? So God can use good forces as well as evil forces in this world to bring about his sovereign will. And it can only be discovered after it happens. So sometimes we actually think that we have perfect 2020 vision in hindsight for God's sovereign will. We have zero vision and foresight, but we can have good vision in hindsight once we see it happen. It's an indirectly ideal plan, though it includes evil acts and foolish decisions. It will ultimately lead to God's glory. Again, what's generally understood of God's sovereign will. Okay, now let's take a look at God's uh, individual will against God's moral will. Some of these things are going to be the same for two or three points, and then they change. A detailed plan for all decisions in a believer's life. Believers are expected to find it as part of the Christian life. Believers can miss it by failure to discover or obey it. Now a few new points here. It is being revealed to the heart of the believer, and we often believe that it cannot be found at all in the Bible. This is something that goes into our impressions our discernment, our other ways of finding God's will, but if one is forced to show chapter and verse, we generally accept that one is not going to be able to do that because it's individual, right? So it's different for you than me, so God has to reveal this in a way that is extra-biblical in order for it to be tailor-made for you and me. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit through inward impressions, I'm using this word impressions, Using many means. Not going to go into that, but there are many different ways, right, that we feel sometimes that an expression is made to us about God's will that is extra-biblical. And its directives, we believe, are specific for one specific believer, such as Mary Joanne in Cheyenne. In contrast with God's moral will, This is a body of general commands and principles for life. Believers are expected to find and to do it. Believers can miss it by failure to discover or obey. It is revealed to apostles and prophets 
and can be found completely in the Bible. So this is an important point that God's moral will is completely expressed in the Bible. There are no things unknown to us about God's moral will. His compression, his expression is complete as given to us in Scripture. It is revealed by the Holy Spirit through supernatural revelation. Sometimes, some might claim this. And its directives are general for all believers. So in contrast to God's individual will, this would be marry only a believer, as opposed to marry Joanne in Cheyenne. I hope you appreciate the rhyme. So why are we inclined to believe that God has an individual plan for our lives consistent with the common view? Why do we tend to believe this? So there's a a few different factors that that, um, come in here. One is, you know, an argument of reason. A simple argument of reason. You know, we know that God knows all things and that he is the God of order who makes plans that he loves his children individually and cares for our welfare. There's nobody here that would not believe any of those statements. Therefore, it just makes sense that he would have an individual will for each of our lives because he loves us individually, right? This idea is supported by biblical images of God as our king, as our shepherd, and as our father. These kind of images just make sense to us that God would have an individual will for each of our lives. Then, of course, we have experiences that we make or that we see of people in the future. I just happen to pick here historical figures I could have picked Nazarene names here, but I would probably would have missed some important ones. So, you know, I'm picking out historical names. Martin Luther, John Wesley, David Livingston, Hudson Taylor. These are people whose lives and service in the Lord we regard as being hugely important and hugely blessed and unique, each of them very unique in their calling, which is evidence to us that God has an individual will and calling for believers. Now, of course, there's some biblical examples of this. Examples we need to treat a little bit differently than teachings. Teachings is the next slide. But we have biblical examples. Just going to run through this quickly. Of course, there were many aspects of Jesus' life that we believe were uniquely his in the way God planned out his life. Paul, the same exact way. Very unique things in the way God scripted Paul's life. You know, what about some lesser figures like Philip as an example, where it said that the Spirit led him, right, ultimately to speak to the Ethiopian? What about somebody like Ananias, who the Spirit led to go find Paul after he was stricken blind? We read that and we wonder, wow, how did that happen? How did the Spirit tell Ananias to go to this place over here and he's going to find Paul? And then speak to Paul about changing his life and converting and ultimately playing a role in Paul's life. Peter, of course, you know, the events of the sheep and the things that he had refused, right, as being specific direction that he's been given. The Jerusalem council. Joseph, of course, in Genesis, where Joseph says, you know, what others meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, inferring that this was all part of God's plan for him personally that this should come about this way. Okay, and then there are some more specific Bible teachings. There are several verses that seem to clearly infer that God has a perfect individual will for each believer. Let's look at a few of those. In Colossians 1, we find a verse that speaks about the knowledge of his will. That generally when we read this, we interpret this to be sort of a personal knowledge from my life that's different from Mark's life but the knowledge of God's will for my life. Okay? An exhortation for us to prove what God's will is. Okay, this emphasizes the fact that it can be known. It can be known. 
And some spiritual disciplines need to go into knowing it. What about, you know, some of the favorite verses of many, like from the Proverbs, where we read these words that it's a promise that God will direct our paths. Who here has not personalized that verse and really taken that to mean that, you know, God in that verse is speaking to me, my life, directing my footsteps, ordering my path. And in a peculiar way, it it speaks to everybody else too, but it speaks to me directly, right? In a personal kind of way. In Isaiah, we read about promises of direction of the right way. The right way. Psalm 32, a promise of counsel in the way which you should go. Ephesians 2, directions into specific good works. Specific good works that sure have overtones of being tailored for each one of us. In Genesis 24, an example in finding the right spouse. I have a list here now of some erroneous expectations from the common view and what the answers to those expectations would typically be. Sorry, I wanted to ping this one at a time here because it's harder for people to follow. But let's just hit the first one here. So some might claim that God will unveil his plan all at once like a course syllabus. Okay? There is a variation of the common view held by more charismatic groups that this is what they believe. God will tell you your life plan and it's going to come to you at a specific time, and you'll know everything. Once he talks to you, you'll know it. Everything in your life. That's what they believe. But in general, the common view says, no, God usually unfolds his will progressively, step by step, like a scroll in life, more than like a course syllabus. One thing we sometimes hear, if I tell God that I don't want to go to Japan as a missionary... That's exactly where he sends me. You've heard that said, right? That God is somehow coy in the way that he interacts with us. But the common view would say, no, that this image of God, of a killjoy, is a caricature. That's not within the character of God. But, but, nevertheless, the place of greatest joy is in the center of his perfect will. So if your heart's desire wants to take you someplace else, sometimes God will sort of force his perfect will on you, but that's the best place for you anyway. You might have fought it, but in the end, it's the best place for you anyway. God only reveals his will to people with specific callings, like ministers and missionaries. No, no, this is the common view. God's vocational call is for each and every believer. Some might claim that only mature Christians can discern God's will. No, again, says the common view, a young believer who has an open heart and is well taught can know God's will too. That really makes it individual. If God, some might claim that if God wants me to do something specific, I can expect a heavenly flash of lightning like Saul on the Damascus Road. No, claims the common view, God normally speaks through a still small voice, as an example in 1 Kings, of his Holy Spirit as he did with Elijah. And the last point, that some might claim that God is only truly concerned about my major life-shaping decisions. And now comes the point also from the common view, no, His will includes all the details of life that lead up to and away from the big decisions. Now, I want to emphasize the fact here, all. The common view generally claims that God has a perfect will for every decision that you and I are going to make. That's the claim. Okay? That's the claim. So those were examples of things that the common view um, basically, I don't want to say rebuts, but refines, okay? But now I'm going to give you a list of things 
in the common view that actually are not easily handled. Okay? One is, if God always... Can you imagine a brother or sister telling this to you? I've heard this many times. If God always clearly reveals his will to sincere seekers, as many give testimony of, of discovering the dot for their lives, why am I having a hard time finding God's will? Because the common view claims everyone can know it, God wants to reveal it, he makes it known, why am I struggling with life's decisions? And there's only one conclusion then that people come to, and that's that I must be broken. Because God is not broken, and his individual will for me is not broken, so the only thing that's left over is I am broken because I can't find his will or have a conviction of his will. What about this? I'm afraid of making wrong decisions and I have made wrong decisions in my life. I've made decisions that I've regretted. And I have feelings of anxiety before making the decision and I often have feelings of guilt after having made the decision. So whenever people, some people come to a crossroad in life where they need to make a decision, this is a major, major crisis because of experiences that they've made in the past that they felt have gone awry. What about the problem of ordinary decisions? Ordinary decisions. So we make, the, the claim is, is that God has a perfect will for all decisions, and yet if we're honest with ourselves we acknowledge that we have to abandon the common view. Frequently, we have to abandon the common view because we just don't have the time or the opportunity to seek God's perfect will in the decisions that we make. Now, there might be... uh, Okay, so the common view, of course, denies ordinary decisions. There are no ordinary decisions. All decisions are either in his will or out of his will, no ordinary ones. Now, there might be the odd decision that somebody makes as an example. You know, I, I've heard, uh, you know, a, br- a brother, uh, you know, mention this too with regard to, to prayer, that we are in a, a, a life crisis situation where we don't really have the ability to pray and we make some expression to God that is sort of like a prayer and, and, and he's going to take care of it, even though we don't have time to formally pray. Okay, and this might be along those same lines, that we might think occasionally, God, I'm making a bunch of decisions here. Lord, help guide me through the right decisions. But how frequently do we really do that, right? Most of the decisions, or the overwhelming majority we make, actually, we consider as being ordinary and cannot consult God on his perfect will. Now, what about the problem of equal options? This is not an ordinary decision, but this is the problem of equal options, I can't see the difference between going to the right or going to the left. I can't find the difference. But the common view actually denies that there are equal options. In God's perfect world, there there cannot be equal options. There's one that's the preferred and one that's not the preferred. So there has to be a difference between the two. And when people can't see the difference between the two, this generates feelings of anxiety over missing the dot. They just have this sense that if I move forward with this, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. What about the problem of immaturity? I can't believe that there is a brother in leadership who has not come across this one. Okay? That sometimes there are foolish spiritual behaviors. I want to emphasize the word foolish. Spiritual behaviors that at times are supported by claims of God's guidance. I believe that God told me to do this. You might have a room full of believers that are giving witness and saying, that can't possibly be true. You're hurting yourself. You're harming yourself. God cannot possibly be asking you to do that. But how are you going to argue with somebody that says, God told me? How are you going to argue with it? 
And it's actually as a result of immature beliefs that are at the bottom of it. <clears throat> what about the problem of wrong decisions? You know, how do I reconcile disobedience with God's perfect will? That I have exhibited disobedience or somebody else has. And I want to give you an example here of the, the Irish missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, leaving the green shores of Ireland to go to <clears throat> India, spent her whole life there. And for most of her life, she prayed to God that God would send her a mate from home, from Ireland. She remained single the rest of her life. And at some point toward the end, somebody asked her the question, why do you think that God didn't answer your prayer? Why didn't he answer? And it's recorded at least in her brogue. She said, oh, God called him. He didn't come. <laughs> he didn't come. Okay, so as humorous as that is, you have to think about this for a minute. That there was somebody that didn't make the right decision according to God's perfect will. That decision that they made probably affected two other lives. It affected Amy Carmichael's life, and it probably affected the person who they actually wound up marrying in the end. Now you do the combinations and permutations from that, that from somebody's wrong decision, this has a domino effect that nobody else in the world can possibly be in perfect will. All you have is second best, third best, or we might even be down to the you know, 10,000th best by the time it ripples down to us. Okay, so these are real-life difficulties with the common view. Real-life difficulties with the common view. <clears throat> if you think about this more, you actually realize that in an odd kind of way, the common view actually promotes, promotes immature decisions. By permitting justification of unwise decisions on the grounds that God told me. And nobody can argue with it. Nobody can argue with it. By fostering sometimes costly delays because of uncertainty of God's will, we don't have the luxury of just sometimes not making decisions. Sometimes if we don't make a decision, there are other consequences and things that happen with that, okay? So sometimes this actually fosters other life events that happens because we can't make the decision. It actually rejects personal preferences in facing equal options, denying the fact that we actually have personal preferences. Brother Tony's preferences are different from my preferences, but this view actually denies that we can actually have individual preferences. What about this one? Encouraging the putting out of a fleece as a common practice. I want to emphasize here, as a common practice and letting circumstances dictate the outcome. There's things that go along with this. Along with the new super-spirituality, there's the idea that if I pray about everything, right, that's sort of like, can, can, you, you see my stripes? You see my advanced officer stripes. I pray about everything. This is a similar one. Well, I, I'm not, I'm not going to make a life decision before I lay out a fleece. You know, that, that is, that's the spiritual way. That's the spiritual way of making this kind of decision in life. And somehow, it's actually viewed a little bit as a banner of honor that one would actually take this approach. You can imagine the kind of immaturity that that actually does wind up encouraging in the long run. If it becomes common, it's not a good thing. A good thing becomes a very bad thing. What about this one? By giving young believers confidence that they can make perfect decisions apart from a tour council if they are sincere. If they are sincere. How many times you think something like this has happened whereby encouraging the fact that you don't need to be mature, young believers can also discern God's will that indirectly 
many are making important life decisions without the appropriate kind of thought, counsel, benefit of godly wisdom that ultimately leads to a different kind of life train wreck that ultimately is a corollary of what we've taught people or what they've caught. They haven't been taught, they've been caught. Sometimes an immature kind of behavior is being created by inadvertently moving believers to misuse their Bible to get guidance. Okay? And there are 23 different flavors of crack in the book. 23 different flavors. Okay? So if people do that, actually, we wind up being okay in Syracuse because if somebody is thinking of moving, you will find Syracuse in the Bible and Mansfield, you're out of luck. Okay? That's the way these things work out if one is going to try and do that. And could I mention to you that there sometimes is a very deeply held belief that misusing the Bible in that way is super spiritual. People really believe that it is somehow a higher level of spirituality by closing your eyes, pointing down to a verse, and if it, if it answers the question that you're looking for in life, I'm not saying the answer you want, the answer you don't want, if it answers it, that that somehow actually becomes justification that that must be the way that this decision should be made. Here's another big one, okay? Ultimately, it avoids accountability for a person's individual life choices by claiming divine guidance. I am really in a bad place and things got messed up, but God told, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm answering you clear in faith. God told me to do this, and, but this is where we are. Okay, so um, what about this one? By fostering more bad decisions, thinking that God's perfect plan has been ruined. Okay? Now, here's a really big one. Here's a really big one. A brother comes to you, married for five years, and confesses to you he did not marry the sister that God called him to. He married the wrong sister. And he is convinced that his life is basically going to be cursed by God because he missed the dawn. And he is being tempted now to make a whole bunch of other bad, bad decisions in life because he believes he messed up. And there's no mitigation plan. And I have all I can do, I have all I can do when I'm counseling with him to try to have him avoid making a host of other bad decisions in life that all come from the fact that he believes that he messed up and there's no recuperating from that. He's under God's, um, what would be the right word? He's under God's stern, whatever you want to call it. And now he is tempted to make other kinds of decisions because of that. Okay, so after having made a strong case for you why we should believe the common view, I've also provided enough evidence that should really actually have us doubt. Something is not right here. Something is not right. But what? What is it that's not right? You know, is it, you know, one question is, does God really have three wills? Is that really what the Bible teaches? Or is it something that we've caught? Does the Bible really teach that there's a dawn, that there is a perfect will, that all decisions fall under? Or what about this question? You know, does God really have a plan for my life? Does he really have a plan for my life? Okay, so I just want to go back to the picture here and say, you know, this is the picture that we have. Now, I, I don't have the time to go through all this with you, but I've, I've worked this out. I've spent quite a bit of time with this, that if we were going to go with each other and rehearse, what do we believe about God's sovereign will? I don't think that there's anybody that would doubt anything about what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign will. Complete unanimity. Likewise, about God's moral will, being complete in its expression 
we know the things that God expects of us exhaustively. I don't think that there's anybody that's going to dispute that point. But now as we look to the last point about God's individual will that seems to personalize this, this is the one now that we're going to look into in a little bit more detail. Okay, Using the same arguments that we use to support the decision, we're going to revisit those same things again. So, doubts about the dawn. Doubts about the dawn. So, we felt the reason was an argument to believe that God does have an individual will. We revisit that and say, well, God's orderliness could provide for the possibility of an individual will, but can we claim that orderliness demands the need for individual will? Can we claim that it demands the need for individual will? Stated a little bit different way, a provision for individual will will not, is, sorry, is not contrary to reason, okay? But at the same time, a provision for individual will is not required by reason. God could work this out in different ways without individual will. What about experience? So this is one of these challenging points. Experience alone cannot determine truth. It can give support for truth. Okay? But experience neither proves nor disproves individual will. There are other adequate explanations for spiritual success that we have in life without an insistence that that's because we followed God's individual will. That's why a good thing has come from this. Now, we're going to look at the points about the biblical examples as well as looking at the biblical teaching. Need another slide for that. So what about the biblical examples? What about all of these things that we kind of recited as leading us in the direction that God has an individual will because of the, how he acted in the Bible in the lives of these people? Okay? So this we have to handle with a bit of care. Many biblical examples are included because they are highly unusual occurrences which testify of God's choice in communicating his divine guidance. So let me ask you this question. Of all the ways that God must have moved in the book of Acts alone, in the book of Acts, and 10,000 is far too small, there are many, many more ways that God moved than that, what precious few are there that we have an example of God choosing to act in a supernatural way in order to express his guidance? There are some, but there are few. So it must be determined if any of these examples are intended to be normative, intended as normative for the Christian life and experience, or whether the Bible has recorded something that was not the norm. The Bible has recorded something that was supernatural to actually foster our belief in the sovereignty and the power of God to be able to sometimes express things that cannot be um, explained in space and time. You know, should a believer, based on these examples, I'm revisiting this in a different way, should a believer expect the light and a voice from heaven to accompany a call from ministry? If we're going to say this is the Bible's pattern, and we're taking the examples as a pattern, that would bring us to the point then that there would need to be a supernatural expression from God to call us to things in life. Is that really what's being taught? How about this one? Should we expect God to speak through a donkey as he did to Balaam? So what do you think? Should we, should we get a donkey at Timber Ridge just in case? These kind of scriptural examples are of real value, but we have to be careful as to how we interpret examples, what we infer from examples as to whether or not it's teaching a norm. So when I say, well, Brother Scott, let's look you know, more clearly at some of the Bible's teachings. So, the, uh, <clears throat> so there's no doubt that these occurrences involve guidance that was more specific than general moral commands of Scripture. But the question is whether such examples necessarily prove that God has an individual will for each believer. And I would have to say that based on what we're going to look at, I would have to tell you no. 
I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches. But let's look at these a little bit more carefully. So this is one of the verses that we made reference to. Psalm 32.8. I could have done this for all the verses, but I picked two. I just picked two to set as an example. Okay? I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way that thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Again, who of us hasn't read that and really personalized that verse for each one of us? So the common view would understand that the speaker is the Lord who is promising specific guidance in a particular way according to the individual will of God for each one of us. That's how the common view would interpret that verse. The word guide, though, that's rendered here in the King James you know, leads the understanding to the verse based on guidance, guide guidance, right? I mean, that's how, that's one of the fundamental ways then that we're going to interpret the verse, okay? But if we look at other places in the Psalms, the word guide and the word that's used has a sense of counsel, not of guidance, a sense of counsel to it. And then we actually get somewhat of a different sentiment of this verse when he says, I will counsel you, with my eye upon you. It's not as specific and not as descriptive based on using the word guidance. When we look also at the last part of the verse, the phrase, in the way that we should go, elsewhere in the Psalms always refers to a course or manner of life that we should follow. Again, I, I won't have the time because you know this is a detailed topic, the time is short, a lot of information I'm asking you to process. But I could have laid out many verses in Scripture that would have showed you that this kind of phrase is referring to a manner of life rather than a specific footstep that we take in life. If God is teaching, he's teaching his way of righteousness intended for all believers as set out in the law, not as an individual way for each believer. If we're going to really take time to get the context right, that is really what's being taught by the verse, even though you and I love it. We love it when we read it and we can think these words are coming from God right to me. And it just warms my heart to know that my father is speaking right to my heart. The temptation is very large to interpret it in that way. But we have to really be careful when we do that. Okay? The passage is likely meant to describe instruction in life of righteousness provided by the law. In other words, this verse speaks more to God's moral will than it speaks to the evidence of individual will for our lives. So let's look at this verse yet. Racing through this here. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Okay, again, this seems to give credence to an individual path for each one of us. But the interpreter must ask, what did the writer mean by this expression? What did he mean when he said this? Well, to get an accurate um, meaning of the verb that's involved here, um, so the noun that's involved, to get the accurate meaning of 6b, it makes your, sorry, it is the verb, to make your path straight, smooth, or successful. Okay. So it's not the sense about he will direct your path. That is very individual when we say that. This is more the way that he will make your path straight, he will make your path smooth, or he will make your path successful. Okay? And that is frequently the interpretation of the word path if we look elsewhere in Psalms. Okay? It is a more general application than a specific one for the reader of the verse. Okay, keep these things in context too from provisions from uh, uh, Proverbs chapter three. These are the couplets that are presented in Proverbs three. Keep commandments, live long days in peace. Keep kindness and truth, find favor and good repute. Trust the Lord, make the course of your life successful. Fear the Lord will bring healing to the body. Honor the Lord, Barns filled with plenty. These are the couplets that are all there in Proverbs chapter 3 that we can, I think, more clearly see that these are for believers set forth as patterns for his or her trust and obedience to God by following God's moral law. That is what the intent of the verse is. 
So I'm asking you to consider, I'm asking you to consider, and I can provide more evidence for you about really thinking about this, about whether the Bible really teaches the dot. And I have to tell you, I can't find evidence that the Bible teaches the dot. We've come to accept this and sort of believe it for our own ways, but I can't find clear evidence that the Bible teaches there is a perfect will. Now, if somebody's going to ask, Brother Scott, do you believe that God has a plan for our life? Do you believe that God has a plan for our life? Okay, I'm going to say that depends on what you mean. Okay? So here's the one way. If we think of God's plan as a blueprint with a dot in the center of his will that we must discover I would have to say, no, I don't think that God has a plan for our life like that. If one is going to say, however, if we think of God's plan as a broad calling, that can be personal, a calling or a charge on each of our lives, which we discern and pursue with a sense of freedom and with a sense of responsibility, if that's what we mean for God having a plan for our lives, then I would have to answer in the affirmative and say, yes, I believe that that is the kind of plan that God would have. Now, the alternate here, actually, that I would like to present is instead of the common view, to consider a way of making decisions that I'm calling godly wisdom. I'm calling godly wisdom. And, and some of these elements are in common, but some of them are different, okay? The first point is where God commands, we must obey. No ifs, ands, no monkey business there, okay? No ifs, ands, or buts about that. Where the Bible commands, we must obey. Where God has no command, no specific command, God gives us freedom, but along with that freedom comes responsibility. We're gonna talk about that. He gives us freedom and responsibility to choose, okay? Where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose, Now, how do we pursue the wisdom? How do we pursue the wisdom? Okay, wise decisions generally emerge from wise counsel. We don't make decisions on our own. We seek other mature counsel in helping confirm the decisions. Okay, when we have chosen what is moral and wise, we still must trust in the sovereign God to work out all the details of what we've decided ultimately for the good. There are many things that are out of control, but we acknowledge, even in making a choice that we believe is the right choice, that we're still appealing to God and his sovereignty to work all of these things out for the good. Do we believe uh, in, in the possibility of special guidance? I would have to say that we could and should. There would be rare cases, rare cases, where God might supernaturally choose to reveal specifics to a believer's life, but it for sure should not be the norm. For sure should not be the norm. I want to point out that the godly wisdom view requires advanced spiritual disciplines. This is not like you just choose, okay? We have to commit ourselves to studying the word. We have to set aside focused time for prayer and reflection, paying attention to the moving of the Holy Spirit. All these things are completely in common. We have to be open and anxious to receive mature godly counsel. We have to be willing to purge or refine personal desires in seeking out a good decision. We do not reject common sense in a decision-making practice. We don't reject common sense as playing a part of it, okay? If somebody wants to do something that really is not commonsensical, like they're doing things, they're hurting themselves. You know, one of the valid ways that we, that does, God would not ask you to hurt yourself. That makes no sense, okay? And that for sure should be a part of trying to discern whether or not this thing is right or not right. And of course, by not expecting, but being open, open to the possibility upon occasion, rare occasions, of supernatural guidance. I want to give you two examples from the Bible now that actually are in line with this freedom responsibility view. So we find this verse in 1 Thessalonians. Very interesting. 
Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good. We thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborers in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So here we have the clear impression that they considered all the different options, and at the end, they felt that it was prudent. They felt it good to make the decision this way. We even have a stronger one in the book of Philemon. The Apostle Paul says something very, very interesting. In asking for Onesimus to stay with him and not returning back to Philemon, Paul says these two things in the book of Philemon. He says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, I gotta explain this verse, though Paul had the apostolic authority to command Philemon to let go of Onesimus because that was practical for Paul's use of working. Though he could have commanded this, he says he won't command it. He says, but without thy mind would I do nothing that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. So he's saying, I could have commanded it, but I'm not going to command it, and I'm asking you to choose whether or not Onesimus stays with me or whether you want him back. Now, I'm not claiming that these two verses alone are exhaustive. I'm saying the principle of where there is no command that we are left with choice is ours. Now, I included this in the slides that you can look at later about attitudes in God's moral law that are clearly expressed. Look, this list of love, reliance, humility, gratitude, these are things that God's moral law requires of us. And the opposite, of course, lust, independence, pride, presumption, guilt, these are things that God's moral law is saying should not and cannot be there. I have verses of scriptural guidance for each one of these. Now the question I have for you. When you think of being a faithful believer, Are you thinking of making decisions that embody these moral laws? When you talk about being faithful, are you really thinking about making decisions in a way that your life really embodies these things that God has commanded? It gives a different tint to the idea of faithfulness, what it means for us to be faithful in our daily walks. So, Whereas the common view actually was something like a dot in the center of God's moral view. Here, I believe the biblical view as I understand it, as I've come to understand it, and you've sensed that my mind has changed somewhat on this. When I was a young believer, I saw this different. But now as I see part of the shipwreck that sometimes happens in other lives, that we're forced to reevaluate sometimes our view with something that isn't crystal clear, I would view it more this way, that within God's sovereign will is his moral view, and there is this area of freedom and responsibility, and the responsibility gets thrown onto all of these attributes as we faithfully make decisions. So to summarize, most have embraced elements of the common view. The common view has been more caught than taught. While sensible at face value, there is no convincing biblical evidence for God having an individual will for us, individual will for our lives, scripting detailed decisions. Holding to the common view in all its parts are untenable. None of us can do that. Where there is no command, we have freedom to make choices. But the burden of responsibility is passed onto embracing attitudes clearly articulated in the scripture as we choose. This is the meaning of faithfulness. We actively look to the Lord to make all things work together for our good. Now, this has been dense. I know that this has been dense. And I have to tell you that I just felt also as we wrap this out here, This is not the kind of topic that actually that there should be a lot of sharing about. This is the topic that I'm going to ask people to digest. 
think about this, okay, before one gives an initial response to it. Think about it, and I would be more than happy, of course, privately or at a different time to discuss this openly. I'm not afraid of any of the things that are... But I just felt that, you know what, this is not the kind of thing that should invoke a sort of knee-jerk response to it. You need to think about this and let it digest and let it process and see how this works out in your own life. Get the, the PowerPoint presentation, put a lot of work into lining things up so that you can go refer to it later, and I just hope and pray that this is going to be helpful for each one of us as we try to understand better God's will and how we make decisions in a way that will really please Him. The Lord bless you. Thank you very much for coming.